Throughout history, countless resources have been spent, wars waged, and lives sacrificed in the pursuit of freedom. Freedom is highly prized. The Book of Galatians is a letter written about how all of us can experience real, true, lasting freedom. Not just freedom from the things that hold us back, but freedom for the things that enable us to thrive. This freedom is only found in one place, the person of Jesus. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Um, this is the second in our new series of um, uh, looking at what we can be free from and for from the book of Galatians. And I want to start this week, in case you missed it last week, um, with some context of that, um, quite a lot of context actually, because I think some of us, uh, when, we, when we sort of dip into books like this, we can sort of miss the overarching story that um, all this stuff comes in the middle of, and it's absolutely vital to our understanding of this letter, and indeed all of Paul's letters. So I'm going to begin, not at the beginning, um, but at the moment that Jesus is with the disciples um, after he has risen from the dead at the beginning of the book of Acts. And um, he's, he's risen, and so they are aware that he's fulfilled um, massive, massive things about the, what they're expe expecting about their Messiah um, when he's come back from the dead. And they're expecting him to do something else, so they ask him, uh, so now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel, which is a real, real big one in terms of what they're expecting. And he says, no, not that exactly. What's going to happen now is I'm going to go, and you're going to all receive the Holy Spirit. And uh, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Witnesses here, witnesses to the Jews that are scattered in and around the area um, from two different diasporas, and then witnesses to the ends of the earth. Um, and that's what they start to do as the Book of Acts gets going. But not beyond their own people, until a character called Saul of Tarsus comes on the scene, following in a long line of least likely to be picked for the job in the story of the Bible. He is as zealous an anti-Jesus Jew as you can get, which isn't necessarily how it seems to us, because what he's not necessarily anti-anything. What he is powerfully, passionately um, driven by is this belief that he must prepare his people and keep his people pure, bring his people back to what they have understood while they wait for this Messiah. And he just sees the Jesus followers as something else in a long line of things that have been trying to corrupt his people. And then, so he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and it turns his life upside down. About 10 years after that, he goes on his first missionary journey to reach the Gentiles. Uh, which included this visit to Galatia, which is part of modern-day Turkey. And he meets pagans all across this region and tells them all about Jesus. And loads of them come to faith, and they're filled with the Spirit, and various churches are formed. But then he has to leave because he's got lots of other Gentiles to reach. And in the meantime, some guys known as the Judaizers have come from Jerusalem. And these guys don't believe in Paul's apostolic authority at all. And in the meantime, they have been telling the new churches in Galatia that Paul is a phony, that he's actually sold them a lie, that the real Jesus gospel requires the adoption of the Jewish law, 
And the only reason that he didn't tell you about this is because he didn't think you'd like that, you know, the whole circumcision part and the uh, strict food and Sabbath laws. But he cheated you and he watered down the gospel to suit your culture. To which, reply, to which Paul replies with this letter. And it's his first letter, or it's the first one that we still have. And it's very direct, as Ed spoke about last week. Uh, there's no opening pleasantries or ni uh, niceties. He just gets straight to the point that he is astonished that the Galatian Christians have so quickly dis deserted what he taught them and so quickly deserted what they had experienced in the grace of Christ by turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. That was the point of Ed's talk last week. But in fact, it is the point of the whole book, nay, the whole Christian life. The grace of Jesus, who he is, what he has done, is everything. There is nothing you can do to add to it. There is nothing you can do to take away from it. It is scandalous and ridiculous and confronting. I don't know if you, I mean, I sat there last week. I wholeheartedly believe this. I've heard a pure grace talk like that many, many times. I still found myself going, yeah, but, and, well, you also got to say the other part, and all of this other stuff, because we leak it, and we can't actually really hold on to it, not without being continually refilled with it. If you didn't hear that talk, I would massively encourage you to go back and listen to it. If you did hear that talk, I would massively encourage you to go back and listen to it, or any other talk like it. Ed is very, very, very good at preaching a merciless Greek, uh, grace message. You cannot wiggle out of it. It is not just for new believers. Grace is the thing that we are to base every aspect of our lives on, and it never gets old. And if you really understand it, it has the power to change you more than any other force on this earth. But we're going to carry on this morning from verse 10. Anthony's going to come and read to us. So Paul is answering now to the accusations being made against him. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us 
is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Thanks, Anthony. That's great. You know, when, um, you know when you meet someone and they can't stop telling you about all the stuff they've done and how many people recognize all the stuff they've done and how important they are? I might be being a little bit oversensitive here, but just in case you feel it too. Uh, do you know that you kind of end up thinking that maybe they're not quite sure about how important they are? Are they maybe telling me this because, in fact, they're not quite that important? It does sound a bit like Paul is doing quite a lot of, Jesus picked me, and then all these big deal guys in Jerusalem saw it in me, and all these other churches saw it in me, and now they're all thanking and praising God for me. It is easy for us to read this passage that way. I know it is easy for us to misunderstand Paul quite a lot. But to be very clear, insecure, Paul is not. He is in no way concerned with his own ego and his own recognition as a really, really, really important guy in the church. Okay, guys? His only concern is that the beautiful, life-changing power of the grace of Jesus Christ is being poisoned as is his credibility as any kind of witness to it. So we'll need to start by flexing our historical and cultural ethnocentric muscles as, as we work to see this outside of our context. Ed went into a bit, this a bit last week, but it is utterly vital to how we understand it, so I'm just going to recap that a bit as well. To us, 21st century born-again Protestants, the temptation is to read all of this through our post-Reformation grace versus works lens. Legalism to us is framed around the idea that we, we could strive to earn acceptance rather than receive it. But the law to the Jewish people was never about earning anything because acceptance to them was never in question. Judaism, as Ed said, was always a religion of faith. God chose a people for himself, and by this gracious act, God's people were made his. The law, therefore, is not any kind of a means of God's people kind of making him theirs. The law was a revelation of who God was to them, to mark them out socially and nationally as his. <clears throat> and this is a slightly different but similar point. When Paul talks about his previous ways of life in Judaism, he didn't convert like we would understand that on the road to Damascus. He wasn't one religion and then ditched the law, the Sabbath, and his mama too, and kind of became another religion. Saul of Tarsus was devout in his faith and his longing and doing everything he could to prepare his people for the promise of the Messiah. And when Saul, who became Paul, met Jesus, it wasn't a conversion. It was a flash of light realization that this ancient promise had been fulfilled. And so there's a fair amount of stuff that sounds one way to us that's actually more about kind of it being encoded in what he's saying that this is the answer to the promise that has been made. If we just look at verse 15, he says, God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. It's less what we, how that might sound to us, and it is much more an echoing of the prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah. If we look at Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you, and I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. 
Isaiah 49, before I was born that the Lord called me from my mother's womb, he has spoken my name, I will make you a light for the Gentiles. Far from being a traitor to Israel's traditions, he's reminding them that this is what God had planned all along. Jesus brought the end of the era of God's chosen people being restricted to any one nation. In Jesus, God chose the whole world. Anyone, Jew or Gentile, who chooses to respond to Jesus' free gift of gracious inclusion in God's people is now called righteous. The purpose and function of the Jewish law has been fulfilled. Which isn't to say there is anything wrong with Jewish people continuing to keep the law. Food law, Sabbath law, these would be things that are intrinsic to all aspects of their understanding of their ways of life. For most Jewish Christians of the New Testament, and still today, that aspect of their cultural identity remains intact, just as many of our um, aspects of our cultural identities remain a part of our Christian traditions, as same as Christians all around the world enjoy theirs. There is nothing intrinsically wrong at all with our different ways of expressing things in church or in our, in our life as Christians, as long as we never ever confuse these things with the gospel of the grace of Jesus. And as long as we never ever make these things dividing lines between us. They were never supposed to be social or national things in our ways of the church. And let us not, as we look at the Judaizers throughout this series, uh, make, the same, make the mistake of thinking that we are not uh, susceptible to the same grave errors. There's a, a, a Jewish-Polish uh, psychologist called Henry Teifel, whose entire f uh, family was murdered in the Holocaust and himself was a prisoner of war held by the Nazis. He spent the rest of his life trying to understand the conditions under which people could be capable of such inhumanity. And he conducted a series of experiments which began in the 1960s, um, each of which began by dividing people into two arbitrary groups, like over a coin toss. And he'd give them arbitrary names. And then he would ask the subjects um, to do things like distribute points or money to all of the subjects and found that no matter how trivial or minimal he made the distinctions between the groups, people discriminated in favor of their group. And since then, I'm sure you know about all this since the advancement in imaging technology, studies consistently show that we'll favor the us group and disfavor the, the them group, even when the categories are completely arbitrary in all sorts of ways from relating to physical cues, uh, sorry, to visual cues of physical pain, just what happens in our brain when we see that of an us, us group or a them group, um, of reactions to watching any individual being threatened, our perception of motives, positive and neg negative motives, our allocation of blame. The basic neurological truth of our species is that we are wired for us and them. Our ways are better than their ways. And this has all evolved from a time when it was the very thing that kept us alive. As Christians, let us be the most aware of our frailty and brokenness before our loving God. 
because we know we're all marred by this sin and the stench of tribal division. It's one of the big Christian drums, I believe it is our duty to beat in these times. I'm sure if you've been coming here a while, you've heard us talk about this stuff before. We do not live in a world of us or them as Christians anymore. That was our old self, and we have been made a new one. It is barking mad out there, isn't it? Tribes can be formed over anything. Tribes could be formed over whether or not I'm allowed to say the word tribe as a white woman. Perhaps that's an important conversation. This year, as we approach another election, it is going to get darker and darker. And we are called to be the light, ladies and gentlemen. To be a people who know that there is a power far greater than our evolved us and them proclivities. That there is a gospel of grace coming for everyone. That we are called to be present and not anxious. A people who know how to be at peace, who know how to love even our enemies, who know that we are created one day to stand before a throne with people from every tribe and every nation, with all our beautiful cultural differences, including all of our Christian enemies. As the Lord's people all together. In fact, if you look at any event of revival in what's documented of any revival in the history of these things, Forgiveness and reconciliation between divided groups is one of the first things that, that happens. It's one of the main markers that all of these things have in common. Meeting God in the power of this grace unavoidably has this effect on us because this is what we were created in his image for. No male, nor female, no Jew, nor Greek, no slave, nor free. Justice matters in the kingdom of God. But to paraphrase what Paul writes elsewhere, if we give to the poor and speak all the wisdom and fathom all the mysteries, and I'll add, fight all the, justice, um, all the vital justice fights, but we do so in dishonoring or divisive or diminishing ways of treating others, if we don't have love, if we haven't learnt how to communicate in love, how to listen in love, and be the light in the darkness, he says, we are like clashing cymbals, resounding gongs. Our witness is just noise. And our witness is the point. We are all called to be his witness. Paul's call is a pretty extraordinary one, but it is one that every single one of us is invited into. Do you know that you're called? Do you know what you're called to? We've been doing this long enough um, that I know that the subject of calling often brings up some difficult stuff. On any given day in church, there'll be people struggling with their call, there will be people disappointed that their call hasn't worked out the way that they were promised, the way that they thought they were promised. There will be people waiting for their call to make any sense whatsoever. I suspect that just me mentioning calling will 
leave some people just feeling left out because they don't know what theirs is and they never have. These are all very, very normal things we've learned um, when we talk about these things in church. Pastorally, I do think this is a very difficult subject to broach because the idea of call in gospel terms has been very mixed in with some of our cultural values. Very mixed in with individualism. Just for instance, the idea that calling is intrinsically linked to the job that we do. For only a very, very small amount of human history has any sense of call been something that most people expect to get from their paid work. And yet so many of us do really, really want and expect that. And this city almost poisons the water with the lie that everyone else has it. Everyone else has been blessed with it. If you just keep slogging, you'll make it too. Dazzling, fulfilling, recognized career, killing it in the exact area of your calling. Which just is a matter of maths. I mean, I'm not any measure of an economic expert but just as a matter of the mass that I understand, isn't going to work. Proportionately, only a small number of people will find work that pays them enough and satisfies them fully in their deepest purpose needs. If you have it, wow. Can I ask you, what are you doing with it? Rich Viodas is a Puerto Rican Brooklynite um, who pastors a large multi-racial uh, church in Queens who, if you are looking for a light amongst your social media doom, um, I highly recommend you follow. He is a great guy. I don't know where he finds the energy for it, honestly, but he regularly posts challenging and beautiful things. Um, he's been calling a lot, uh, sorry, posting a lot recently on the subject of calling and discerning God's will. And he gave a simple yardstick a couple of weeks ago for anyone asking if what they're pursuing in their calling is God's will. He said we should ask, is it making you generous? Not in reference to money necessarily. Is it helping you be generous in spirit, in time? Generous in your energy, generous in grace, generous in love of your neighbor. Because contrary to what our cultural myths have let us believe, calling in Jesus, it's not really about you. It's about a power coming in from the outside and taking charge. It's about meeting the person of Jesus, not a set of ideas or a code of behaviors or an inclusion in any kind of tribe. And his grace, the power, the fuel, the balm, the remedy, the everything, pervading every inch of your being. And because you've experienced it, you're compelled by it to follow him wherever he will lead you. Have you ever asked yourself, uh, how you'd have responded to a call like Paul's. I do think most of us find the idea of that level of clarity, of like a blinding light meeting with Jesus, really attractive, perhaps less the blindness part. 
But what about the imprisonment? What about the just being hated and misunderstood and kicked out everywhere you go? I tell you what, as a church leader, being misunderstood is not my favorite feeling. It's one I've had to really learn to make my peace with. I do not like it. What about the shipwrecks? What about the execution? I'm sure, like me, you've heard a fair amount about um, Alexei Navalny in the last week or so. The lawyer turned opposition leader against um, Putin's corrupt regime in Russia who died in an Arctic penal colony last weekend. Um, commentators I had listened to and read about that just struggled to find a reason uh, for why he went back because it was an absolute given. Um, he, he, he was uh, poisoned with a toxic nerve agent and left and to recover and then chose to go back and the, it was very clear he would be arrested and probably killed and uh, lots of questions are being asked about why he went back and then late last week you may well have seen this too uh, some of what he said at his 2021 court hearing when he was sentenced um, came to light this is what he said I should have put it on the screen, shouldn't I? <laughs> Give me a sec. <clears throat> the fact is, I'm a Christian, which usually sets me up for ridicule in the Anti-Corruption Foundation, the organization that he founded, because most of our people are atheists. And I was once quite a militant atheist myself, but now I'm a believer. And that helps me a lot in my activities because everything becomes much, much easier there are fewer dilemmas in my life because there is a book in which it is more or less clearly written what action to take. It's not always easy to follow this book, of course, but I'm trying. It's pretty confronting, isn't it? Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. I think that for those of us who find this level of sacrifice impossible to relate to, impossible to do anything with other than just sort of weep, the Pauls of the world, the Navalny's, the Martin Luther King's, the countless other and the rich heritage that we have of martyrs, of people who've given up everything because they believe in this stuff so powerfully. I think the answer is very simple for us. We just have to receive more of his grace as we try to reimagine what being his followers really look like. I think for so much of my life, I'd labored under the kind of strong belief that this was simply about obedience. As my kids have got older, I've had to kind of uh, readjust what I really think about obedience really mean? Like, because there's a point when they're a toddler and you just want them to like, not run into the road where they have to obey what you say to some degree or another. But ours are like tweens and teens now. And suddenly, if they're not doing it because they're led from an internal drive to do it, 
it doesn't, it's not going to work them obeying me anymore. They've got to actually figure out how to be in the world themselves. There's a lot of parents of teens nodding very heavily. Uh, I think I had this really, really juvenile attitude towards what following Jesus was for a very long time. I don't think those people get to where they are to being willing to die for this stuff because of obedience. They do it because of love. Because it takes hold of them. Nobody is going to pretend that following Jesus doesn't come with a cost. If anyone has ever tried to convince you of that, they are trying to sell you a lie. There is nothing on the pages of the New Testament that back that argument up. There is a cost to following Jesus. But it's one that we are only willing to pay because we have been so changed by his love. If something other than the gospel of grace of Jesus has got hold of you, if it hasn't changed us to that level, it's just very simple. We don't know it well enough yet. So let's just start where we are. The gospel of the grace of Jesus is a power. And our only job is to receive it. To shed any other gospel than that one. To shed any gospel of works, any gospel of what anyone else has told you, any gospel of what anyone else wants for your life. My granny was a missionary in Rwanda her whole, her whole married life. My grandpa was born there. They, were, they saw themselves as Rwandans. They spoke Kinyarwandan at home. My mum was born there. She spoke Kinyarwanda in Swahili before she spoke any English. It was who they were. I didn't really ever know them because they lived in Rwanda. Um, and I just really knew my granny via these packages that would arrive of impossibly itchy, deeply, unesthetically pleasing jumpers that she would knit us that sometimes included letters, and what she would say to me, and what she often said to my mum, was that she believed that I was the one of all of her grandchildren that would follow on this legacy of East African missionaries. There's four generations of them. I didn't want to go to Rwanda. <laughs> I never did, and I'll tell you what, it was a force quite powerfully that kept me out of church as I was considering coming back to it, because I truly believed I mean, do you know what? She might be right. I might be called there one day. Life is long. I'm only 43. Age is left. Might be going to Rwanda soon, babe. I should not say never. I've learned to never say never, never say never. Not with God. It weighed very heavily on me, and it was one of the first things that the Spirit powerfully removed from me when I came back to church which wasn't to say that there wasn't more cost and more surrendering and more actually, what are you calling me to? But I wonder if there are some of us who have had things like that put on us that aren't personal to you, that aren't the things that God is calling you to. Another very quick note on all of this before we pray. Uh, verse 17, Paul mentions going to Arabia. We don't have a lot of other information 
um, on what happened there um, and whether how much of those three years he spent there. It's not clear. But what is clear is that there does seem to be some pattern to wilderness times being required of us if we want to follow Jesus and be his disciples. Jesus, uh, we read in all of the synoptic gospels, was led by the Spirit, the wording is precise in all of them, into the wilderness after his baptism, uh, right before his ministry begins. Alone, fasting, stripped of any comfort. And then he's tested. And it's almost like there is a precedence for those experience, those experiences being a prerequisite for ministry, for being used in his power for all of us. It's almost like God, and I'll be careful with the wording here, but will lead us into places of isolation at times, stripped of the things that we rely on that make us feel okay and make us comfortable, to remind us of our real and true state before him. And we clearly and purposefully always want to say that we never ever um, we do not believe that God brings us into places of suffering if, if that was the case then why on earth did Jesus spend so much of his time taking suffering away but he will use anything and I do believe sometimes that will include allowing things to be stripped of us if you feel like you are in a place of wilderness this morning can I massively encourage you to waste no more time wondering what you did wrong to waste no more time wondering why on earth this is he, why God is doing this to you, and to ask him what for. It's Lent. This is a time for this stuff. What are you showing me? What are you revealing in me? What are you growing me in? Commentators point out this strange echoing in the way that Paul tells the story here of Elijah told in 1 Kings 19. Um, Elijah's the prophet who saves the whole nation from corruption in their worship of Baal. He journeys to Arabia and was um, in, which is where Mount Sinai is, and it's when he was at Mount Sinai that he has this intimate conversation with God and God sends him to Damascus. It's just a sort of mention of Arabia and Damascus that commentators said it seems like Paul is making this point. We don't know what Paul did for those three years. We aren't told. But we have to imagine that whatever happened in those three years, that his intimate conversation with the Lord at Mount Sinai or elsewhere changed him and shaped him in such power and clarity that it launched him with unswerving clarity onto the gospel of grace. You don't have to do this, but what we often say, what we often invite people to do is to close their eyes so they're not distracted and to open their hands so that their mind and spirit are aware of what their body is doing, which is just saying, I'm open to you, Holy Spirit. And why don't you invite him? If it's just more of an understanding of the gospel of grace that you need, ask him for that. Why don't you ask him to help you let go of any misunderstandings of calling? 
any pain that you've experienced because it just hasn't been happening the way that you thought. If you're in the wilderness at the minute, why don't you invite him to speak to you, to encourage you, to steer you? But if you're ready, why don't you invite him to lead you? Why don't you take the incredibly brave step of surrendering your plans, what you had in mind, and invite him to speak to you about his call.